Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thanks for joining me. Happy Mother's Day to everybody celebrating. Hope your weekend is going well. Well, let's talk about what's happening in Ukraine. I don't have too much to say. It's bleak. We're officially in a proxy war. Not that that was ever in dispute, but now there's just no effort at all to hide it. And the most amazing part is that this is just openly being declared now that we're in we're basically using Ukraine to fight Russia. And all this is being said with no debate, all this money being sent over the latest bill passed by Congress, $33 billion. The vast majority of that is being spent on weapons. Congress overwhelmingly passing this lend lease act that will speed up the transfer of military equipment to Ukraine. Biden will sign that on May 9th, which is on Monday, one day after this is being recorded. And all this is being done with no debate. Nothing in Congress, nothing, no opposition at all from Biden's own party. And the only political opposition coming from a, a small splinter of the Republican Party. So here is one Democrat, a leading uh, hawk, uh, Seth Moulton, making it very plain on Fox News. I only have 10 seconds left uh, for each of you, if you could. But if they wrap this in the Senate uh, with a Ukraine funding and a COVID funding, you guys OK with that, Congressman Moulton? Look, I'm going to support it because it's the right thing to do for Ukraine. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of politics involved, and there will be domestic debates here at home about other policies and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we've got to realize we're at war. And we're not just at war to support the Ukrainians. We're fundamentally uh, at war, although somewhat through a proxy, with Russia. And it's important that we win. Congressman Turner? So there we go. From Seth Moulton, Democratic member of Congress, we are not just at war to support Ukraine. We're not just at war to support the Ukrainians. We're fundamentally at war, although somewhat through a proxy with Russia. And it's important that we win. Couldn't have said it more clearly. This is a full-out proxy war. It has nothing to do with the official narratives of protecting democracy and defeating autocracy and whatever other slogans they have. And this is Joe Biden earlier this week. A lot going on in the country, but one of Joe Biden's biggest priorities is going to the Lockheed Martin plant in Troy, Alabama, and touting his new $33 billion military aid package. And one thing he says uh, to support this uh, new surge in military aid to Ukraine is is an anecdote reportedly about Ukrainian parents naming their children after the anti-tank missile, the Javelin missile that is made by Lockheed Martin. They can hit targets up to 400 meters away and have a fire and forget capability. That means a person firing can, I know you know, because for anybody who may be listening, can change positions or take cover before that javelin even strikes home and strikes a target. In fact, they've been so important. There's even a story about Ukrainian parents naming their children, not a joke, their newborn child, Javelin or Javelina. Not a joke. Not a joke, indeed. Not a joke, indeed. So that's where we're at. Meanwhile, you have these leaks coming out now from U.S. officials, from uh, to the uh, to the New York Times. The first story this week was called called "U.S. Intelligence is Helping Ukraine Kill Russian Generals." Officials say so. Some anonymous officials taking credit for U.S. giving intelligence to Ukraine that they say killed approximately twelve Russian generals. Now, on the surface, this looks like yet more proof that the U.S. is waging a proxy war with Russia. But I actually personally don't necessarily buy this story. 
if the U.S. was actually giving intelligence that was killing Russian generals, I have a hard time believing that U.S. officials would actually be leaking that. I just don't see it. I, I see this as a propaganda tool to promote the U.S. involvement in the war, uh, to try to take credit for whatever successes Ukraine has had, if they've had them, and to basically uh, increase the pressure on Congress to continue funding it because the U.S. can claim that they're having, quote-unquote, success by killing Russians, which will appeal to many people inside Congress and certainly inside the media. And one reason I don't actually doubt the story, I don't believe the story is true, is because they say that one of the ways that they are able to find these Russian generals and, and, and provide intelligence that could kill them is because supposedly these Russian generals were speaking on unsecure phone lines. And I'm not a military expert, but that just strikes me as completely ridiculous. I just, I don't, I don't see how a Russian general would be speaking on an unsecure phone line to the point where they could get detected by U.S. intelligence. That just, to me, just sounds really far-fetched. And there was another uh, leak to the same team the next day in the Times called U.S. Intelligence Helped Ukraine Strike Russian Flagship, officials say. And that was the uh, Moskva, which was sunk near Ukraine a few weeks ago. And here it's U.S. officials taking credit for that. Again, I have no idea if that's true, but regardless... Undoubtedly, there are people inside the U.S. government from the top, from, from the highest levels who see this as a proxy war with Russia. And it's engaging. It's going ahead with zero debate, nothing. We're all just supposed to get on board and accept whatever consequences come, including we have to start thinking about the possibility of nuclear war. I don't think it's going to happen. But in my lifetime, at least, or at least as long as I've been aware of politics, I've never been more concerned never been more concerned and it's just amazing how little that concern is at least being debated and acknowledged in our media discourse around this issue so that's my opening rant a little dark but that's where we're at and let's take some calls so shamir you're up first hello Adam, can you hear me yes hello i've been a big admirer of your work I just wanted to ask you, uh, you just said that uh, there is no debate or dissent. Uh, recently, I read an article uh, by Thomas Friedman in NY Times where he said that we should, uh, America should be very careful on how they like uh, do the, their work in Ukraine. Uh, do you think that in mainstream there is some opening? I mean, if Thomas Friedman is a very mainstream writer, do you think that it can be a, like there's some opening? I hope I made my question. Well, I didn't read. Hello? I didn't read Thomas Friedman's. Yeah, I, I didn't read his article, but so I, I don't know what he said. But um, I, I also think he kind of he also encouraged this war, whether he meant to or not. I think he certainly, with the way he's written about Russia and Ukraine, I think he has encouraged this war, and so he shouldn't be surprised now that it's escalated to the point where it's escalating, and he also just might be upset that things that are awkwardly like that are awkward and, and scary are being leaked. I'm not, I'm not sure if he even disagrees with the underlying policy of waging a proxy yeah, war. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said about that leaks are getting out and he's very upset about it. Sorry. Okay, so so maybe he's just upset about the leaks, not actually about the underlying policy. Thank you. Shamir, are you there? Okay. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Shamir. And James, you're up. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for taking my call. 
Uh, just uh, going back to uh, theory of international uh, relations that a lot of foreign policy is related to domestic initiatives. How much of the uh, clarion call and just push for essentially proxy war of uh, Russia? I mean, that clip that you played from Fox News and that Democratic representative or congressman or senator, whoever, full on admitting just straight up, yeah, we're at war with Russia. It was pretty shocking to hear, actually. <laughs> but how much of this do you think is just kind of related to incumbent parties wanting to possibly capitalize on supposed public support for helping Ukraine by just profligate spending and just no accountability on how billions of dollars of aid is going supposedly to Ukraine. But we all know a lot of that's just going to be used to fuel the military industrial complex and their proxies. But like, do, do they think this is some kind of way to gin up support for upcoming elections, you know, in the case of the Democratic Democrats were the midterms of 2022 or the Conservative Party in the UK, you know, being on the rocks politically, like a lot of this just seems to be they just seem to be pursuing this very hawkish stance against Russia and just giving Ukraine billions of dollars of aid without any real consideration of yeah. what that means and, you know, whether or not we can even afford it, given, you know, inflation is at an all time high and People are struggling and the government's like, yeah, but, you know, support Ukraine, guys. What, what's your take? <laughs> yeah, I think they might think that this will get them some domestic support. And they've tried out lines like Putin's price hike. If you remember yeah. that, it's kind of it's kind of dead now because it was a dud. Uh, you know, we're basically to blame instead of taking responsibility for rising gas prices, rising prices for commodities. They're blaming Putin. So Putin's price hike, that was the big campaign. It didn't work out so well. And so, but they might think as if somehow this is going to work for them because they might believe in their minds that, yeah, the cause of a NATO proxy war in Ukraine is something that most Americans want, but there's no polling to suggest that. And so to the extent they believe it, I think it's they're living in a complete bubble that has been encouraged by MSNBC and CNN, where, you know, in, in, in the green rooms of MSNBC and CNN, yeah, there's a lot of support for this. And if that's all you're tuned into and all you do is read foreign affairs and the Washington Post and New York Times op-ed section, you might think that most Americans will support you on this, but there's no polling at all, at least that I've seen, that shows that this is a domestic winner, because why would it be? You know, Do most Americans wake up every day and think about how we can better arm Ukraine and why it's important to defend at all costs Ukraine's right to join the hostile military alliance on Russia's borders? It just, you know, and then asking them, as the Biden administration is doing, to shoulder the cost. So to say, yes, you're going to have to suffer, your food prices are going to rise, your gas prices are going to have to rise, but it's for a good cause. It's it's a sacrifice that you have to make. That That's what Stephen Colbert said back in the at the early stages of this proxy war and, uh, of, of the Russian invasion. He said, this is the price we all have to pay or something for, I don't know, democracy or freedom. And that's so th I'm sure these people believe that. But of course, it's completely delusional. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just reminded by uh, uh, Michael Tracy's photo of that uh, receipt that had a dollar just ad hoc added support for Ukraine. It wasn't even. <laughs> yeah, yes. For anybody who missed that, there's a couple who went to brunch. I think it was in Dallas, and you know they're showing their bill for their brunch for their brunch meal. And there's like mimosas and whatever, like ch chicken and waffles, whatever they got. And then there's an item that says, it says, uh, for Ukraine. And the guy filming the video is like, I didn't, I didn't order this. Like, I know I ordered a mimosa and a chicken, like chicken and waffles, but I didn't, 
uh, order anything about Ukraine. And like, when did like, did Ukraine like, like, did I ever take money from Ukraine without them asking me first? Like, no. So why are they taking money from me? And that's exactly what is going on. Without any debate, we're all just supposed to pony up for this proxy war and uh, not ask questions. And everyone's just supposed to be okay with it. That's just where we're at right now. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thank you. Okay, Matthew. Uh, hello. Hello. So, as you know, as you know, tomorrow is Victory Day, the day the Nazis were defeated in like World War II. This is obviously a big holiday for Russia. That being said, do you fear that Russia will declare war and up the ante as it were? Because right now, this is like a special military operation in the eyes of Russia. That means uh, they they. They they they're holding back essentially. I believe this is because, like, in their eyes, this isn't a war, and they haven't mobilized because they don't think it's a war, but a special military operation, and they don't think they need to put the effort in. Do you think they? Do you think like? And that's because um, they're winning, as it were, on the battlefield. Well, I'm not sure. From the people I follow, like Scott Ritter and company, they say this. I believe it for now. Do you feel like they might change it at a point and say, okay, we're going to war, and that means, like, uh, striking across the border? Because, like, in my, cause in my eyes, the reason that hasn't happened yet is because they, uh, uh, it, it, it's in their eyes a special military operation. Yeah. Well, look, I was someone who didn't think that Russia would invade, so my record in calling this is, is not very good. So I'm not in a, in a position to make predictions anymore. I have no idea. But uh, I, I've heard things, I, I've heard predictions both ways. And it's, you know, I, I have no idea. But I certainly wouldn't rule it out. That's the best I can offer you. What are your thoughts on the situation as a whole? Like, as in, like, on the battleground? Who do you think is running currently? Well, I certainly don't trust all the claims we're getting about Russia being clobbered. I I, th- I think definitely they didn't do as well as they thought they would do. And it's plausible to me that they expected to be welcomed and got a very uh, rude awakening when they actually came in. That makes sense. But this notion that they've suffered all these huge defeats and it's not going well, I don't buy that because, first of all, if you look at what information we're allowed to get on the Ukrainian side of things, like there's no reporting from the front lines or very little. No one's allowed to go visit field hospitals uh, there's there's nothing on that. And that tells me that things are not going be- very well for Ukraine. I mean, look what's happening right now in Mariupol with the Azov Battalion basically saying that the Ukrainian government has abandoned them. And um, so it strikes me that Russia is slowly achieving its aims, but is doing so probably at a lot, at a lot slower pace than, than it expected. And certainly there's no doubt that Russia has taken heavy losses and that, you, that Ukraine has fought better than I think people predicted. But overall, do I think Russia's losing the war? No. I don't think so. I, I have a feeling that the weapons sent by uh, NATO and the United States and basically uh, everyone doesn't, they don't work. They don't work, and I, I have a feeling that they don't work. Yeah, that's what Scott Ritter says, too. He says that the equipment that is being sent by the U.S. is actually... They're kind of giving, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have no way to evaluate that claim, but that's what he says. Uh, who, who you, uh, hang, you muted for a second. Uh, Scott Ritter. 
Yeah, I, I yeah. had a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. He says yeah. they don't work. I, I had a feeling. Yeah. 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 All right, Matthew, thank you for the call. Thank you. Hello, Scott. Hey, Aaron. Um, I was wondering if you saw the article in The Guardian today about the Azov Battalion. No, I didn't. Oh, no, sorry. It, I saw a tweet about it where they uh, they kind of they're doing what the Times is doing now, forgetting that Azov is, is Nazi. It's amazingly <laughs> propagandic. It's completely whitewashing. They they uh, they paint them basically as valiant heroes that aren't aren't going to surrender. It takes them about ten paragraphs to get to. The uh, Azov fighters say its membership holds a range of political opinions. Azov formed as a volunteer battalion in 2014 to fight Russian-backed forces, and some of its leaders are known to hold far-right views. But since 2015, it has been part of the Ukrainian army and no longer attracts only far-right combatants. Yeah, right. And yeah, yeah. It, it's just incredible. If you want to get frustrated, I suggest reading the article. Yeah, there's a there's there's a a line in the Guardian that Ali Abunima tweeted out where he says this, the Azov regiment, which has in the past had nationalist far right affiliations, uh, was a militia formed to fight the Russians after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So now it's okay. Yes, they had these far right affiliations, but that's all in the past. Now they are a bunch of uh, moderate rebels, you know, <laughs> basically that's, that's the message. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. The, yeah, they, uh, like, they don't. They don't take into like the the people are still wearing Nazi symbols, and they're just ignoring that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you compare that to how all these outlets used to acknowledge used to acknowledge very clearly that Azov is Nazi and fascist. Uh, so, for example, the Guardian in two, March two thousand eighteen, so four years ago, the it, it described Azov as quote a notorious Ukrainian fascist militia. Yeah, but now you can't anymore. Now, now all of a sudden you just can't do that. It's it's so striking. It's so shameless, and everyone's doing it. The Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's been yeah, the that, slow. It's been the, it's it's been a slow creep. So first, first, so when the when the when the Russian invasion first happened, first it was uh, Ukraine was a or Azov was a far right nationalist group, and then that slowly went away. Now it's just become a militia, which it has in the past had far-right ties. It's just... So, I don't know. The next thing you know, like, they're going to be... In, like, a year, they'll be described as being, like, uh, you know, pro-LGBTQ plus pro-abortion mo- moderate group of uh, activists. I mean, like, that's that's where it's going. It's it's so ridiculous. Yeah, that's what the, was most shocking, just the change in tone and, and how matter-of-factly it was just like, oh, the Azov Battalion is fighting to the last man, you know, yeah. not going to surrender. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you for taking my call. Thanks, Scott. All right, Rudy. Hey, Aaron. What's up, man? How's it going? Pretty good, man. Um, just enjoying your show again. Thanks for all the good work that you do. And what's just going through my mind is just, I think, you know, our psychopath rulers are running out of tricks, and I think the hubris is still there. Um, to think that we're able to just squeeze Russia and just pretend that we're not doing it, to just keep punching them, keep poking them in the face, in the eye, and just keep saying, oh, we're not doing anything, we're not doing anything. And I think it's been, I mean, obviously, 
it's worked before, right? We've been able to uh, do all kinds of things to the Afghanis, the Afghanis, and they've not been able to um, have anybody hear them. Um, we've we occupy what percentage of Syria, and still, you know, nothing comes out. But I don't know. These guys have bitten more than they can chew, and I don't know that they. Uh, Chris Hedges says that they know basically that you know the game is up, and then they're just trying to grab as much as they can. And so I see it in that way, but I also see basically just people that are desperate to cling on to something before everybody recognizes. And I think now we'll get into, I mean, look at climate change. It's forcing us to recognize certain things. And then people are having to take up more cynical positions at this point, basically like, yeah, we we have to, but at this point it's either us Americans or like everybody else. And so it's going to put us into that kind of position where we're going to have people who are going to come out and say, yeah, we are in this, we're in a war and stuff and forget history as if like we even thought ever about like history. But yeah, so I think these guys are like, they're just so full of their own hubris. They just, they got their head so stuck up their asses that they just, they don't know that it's no longer the times of Kissinger and Nixon where you can just pretend to be crazy and then just have everybody just, you know, fall in line. Like the Russians at this point probably don't, they're looking at things and they're like, yeah, we don't really have many more you know, steps backwards that we can take. They're basically putting their and the the the, the Saudis are also now sort of going to. It, it, we're losing we're losing a lot of power, and the dollar is losing power. And these people, you know, they're. I'm just afraid that they're just going to abandon us. I'm, I don't know why I'm afraid that they're going to abandon us because we're probably better off with these without these leeches. So I don't know. I'm with you guys, man. It's some bad things, but the nice thing I think out of this, and it's 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 weird. I think it's nice to have at least the fact that like to have other countries now basically being able to at least you know control something of their future because we were the United States has been so irresponsible that I cannot I can't say that I hope that we you know win this thing because. What does it mean that we win this thing? It, it, we're just going to keep basically fighting for corporations to be able to have oil, an undemocratic thing that is killing us, killing the planet. I think it, it's nice to, as much as we could have, it's, it'd be, I can, I can see how, you know, having a China, a Russia and the United States, basically three sort of poles, how it could work out badly for other people. But at this point, I don't really know I, yeah. a choice. Yeah. Well, certainly, I think the way thing the way things currently work right now, which is that the U.S. has not just huge military power and can, you know, cause so much damage, just be a proxy war, like it's doing right now in Ukraine, where U.S. military forces aren't directly involved in fighting, but still, the U.S. is playing such a huge role. But also in terms of its financial power, where like just the U.S. control of the financial system can choke off entire countries. I saw that firsthand when I went to Syria last year. And so many basic things that we all take for granted in the the West and elsewhere, you know, any place that's not living under U.S. sanctions, basically, you 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 you're denied in Syria, in a place like Syria, where you know the banking system is 
cut off from the rest of the world. The companies that want to re- help rebuild the country uh, can't can't if they're doing business with uh, a a company from outside Syria because nobody will actually do it because they fear being sanctioned by the U.S. If you like, if you if you if you if you like sell cement to Syria, for example, or you help facilitate the transfer of like something like cement, you'll face sanctions by the U.S. And so just any, so that system where the U S just, you know, at the, at like the flick of a pen or a keystroke can just cut off economies and prevent them from surviving and rebuilding in the case of Syria, that just doesn't work. And so that needs to change. And so I think anything that can undo that, I think for me personally is a positive development and we'll see, like we'll see what comes of, of the war in Ukraine. It's, it's yet to be decided. And um, I wonder, by the way, I'd love to know one day what, was the thinking in Washington and what was the motive and how much were people in the Biden administration motivated strictly by revenge where they felt as if Russia spoiled their plans in Syria because it was Russia's intervention in Syria that was decisive in stopping the Al Qaeda dominated insurgency that the U S was supporting. And so to what extent is this just done out of like, out of a sense of humiliation and wanting revenge? I mean, I, no. I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which that. Wrote- I like I like Rose line. I think it's the corporate Democrats that are pushing Biden to doing this thing. It's not Biden's agenda. Well, I th- Biden strikes me as a pretty true believer, and certainly, certainly, like the people he's appointed, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Samantha Power. I mean, all these people were pursuing similar policies when they worked under Obama. You know, I agree. And Biden Biden's been a lifelong hawk, so I. Biden strikes me as being on board. So anyway, I agree. Rudy, thanks, thanks for the call. Fantastic. Thanks for the call. Yep, thank you. Okay, H. Ali. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was wondering a little bit about because you're Canadian, right, originally? Yes. Uh, um, <clears throat> so I have some thoughts about Canada um, in terms of the discourse about uh, this this war. Just yeah, well, uh, Ju- uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, mm-hmm. just made a surprise visit to Kiev oh. and uh, pledged more weapons from Canada. So that's that's Canada's current contribution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because just to frame it, like I'm not like very uh, well read on uh, Canada, but I remember when. Justin Trudeau, like, like, touched on my, you know, general radar in politics, like five, six years ago, or whenever, and we were all like very impressed with him, sort of, because we were naive, and he was sort of like your Obama, like he was so modern and and so even handsome, and um, he seemed so progressive on like you know environment and and stuff like that, but then. Since then, like, gradually, it's, for me, it's been like, you sneaky motherfucker. It's like, it, it just seems like, uh, I feel like I've been, like, I was being very naive and Trudeau or the, his line of, uh, politics in Canada is a lot more, a lot more cynical and not a lot more, like, really, like, traditionally more, more right wing than I thought. So, I'm thinking, and now with this war, 
it didn't come as a shock, but it's like, I don't know, maybe that whenever you hear Canada's done something that that is like typical of the pro-war side or like it's very um, not balanced, maybe to someone like me, it comes off as like I react more to that, whereas when it comes from the American side, it's like, yeah, that's that's to be expected. So, but uh, look, uh, Canada has a reputation that's completely undeserved of being somehow pro peace and having an, an independent foreign policy, independent of the U.S. And part of that comes from the fact that it didn't officially participate in the Iraq War. Jean mm-hmm. Chrétien, who was the prime minister at the time, I think it was Jean Chrétien. I don't actually remember. Maybe it was Paul. Mar- anyway. Um, you know, Canada officially did not get involved in the Iraq war, but still, it still offered support to the U.S.-led coalition. And a similar thing with Vietnam, where Canada wasn't officially fighting in Vietnam, but it still armed the uh, the uh, U.S. force there and helped it in other ways. And so it's always had this, it's always been really good. And liberals in Canada, especially like Justin Trudeau, are good at this, at pretending as if they're independent, but really just always following U.S. orders. And that's why if you look at, you know, some of the major coups carried out by the U.S. in the Western Hemisphere in this century, Haiti, 2004, Venezuela, the ongoing coup attempt there, Canada's put a huge role in that, especially in Haiti. So Canada's reputation is, ha- is having this, like, independent streak is totally, it's fiction, basically. It's, it's, it's totally undeserved. Yeah. So if you would, like, compare the discourse about this war and the actual politics between Canada and, and the U.S. What's, what's your general... I mean, do you, do you think they're, like, even more hawkish than the U.S., or, is, or is, do you feel the same? Like, is there anything that you feel is, like, different about Canada compared to the U.S. in this circumstance? Well, in Canada, there's a pretty big uh, pro-Bandera Ukrainian lobby. Yeah. So, basically, Ukrainians who identify with the Bandera wing of Ukraine, which is nationalist and even... Nazi. Um, so that's influential, but, the, but there's also a similar contingent here in the U S. So no, I don't think there is a big difference. I think the basic through line is that the U S is that Canada follows the U S's orders. But do you think they're, so you, you feel it's basically just the same or is one side slightly more like right wing or hawkish or whatever? I, d- yeah, I don't think, uh, I think they're equally hawkish. If I, I don't think, uh, I don't see any, you know, if you look, for example, look, like you can always tell how um, constrained and narrow debate is and just how kind of uh, like completely one-sided a country is uh, without any real diversity. If you look at the positions of the most like of the most like fringe, like dissenting party. So the party to the furthest left of the spectrum inside the mainstream. And so. In the U.S., obviously, that's the Democrats. And in Canada, it's the New Democratic Party. And if you look at the Democrats, like, for example, Matt Duss, who's Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, he thinks that Biden's policy is great. He has no problem with it. He says it's exactly what progressives should support. He says that no one has any serious solution to solve the Ukraine conflict diplomatically and says that basically all the solutions that have been presented to resolve it with diplomacy amount to surrender on the part of Ukraine, that's the position of Matt Dusk, who's supposed to be a progressive uh, who works for Bernie Sanders. And then same thing with the NDP in Canada. It's still total support for the proxy war. 
no one even acknowledges that there was a coup in 2014, that there is something called the Minsk Accords, which was reached in 2015, which present the only diplomatic solution to this whole thing. They're either they, uh, either they omit it deliberately or they don't even know about it, which I'm not, I'm not sure which is worse. So that's our spectrum in both the U.S. and Canada. So I don't see a big difference. Well, thanks for taking my call, and thanks for all the good work. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Greg, you're up. Karen, hope you're doing well. Um, I just wanted to bring to your attention and everyone else's attention, there's this interesting, disturbing video on Twitter, or it links you to YouTube, put out by the Special Operations Forces First Command, and it's this weird, like, two-minute ad basically talking about how, you know, we're, if you join the Special Operations Command uh, Psychological Warfare Unit, you get to do psyops and around the world. And there's a threat, like in the video, it's like there's a rising threat in the East and it shows all of these soldiers marching in China and in Russia. And, you know, it just, it, it's a very weird video and I'm sure it is made to, uh, uh, have a certain Pavlovian response for, you know, a certain kind of audience, depending on where they stand on the political spectrum. So, and Greg, sorry, who's behind this video? The Special Operations Forces, uh, our first Special Operations Forces Command. You should be able to find it on their Twitter. Um, and, spe- and like, and like, which which country are they? Is this U.S.? U.S. U.S. Okay, yeah, United yeah. States. Yeah, and basically just saying, oh, we operate in the shadows, and it's like, who pulls the strings? And it's weird video. <laughs> I also wanted to um, respond to Matthew on what I thought was going on in Ukraine, because I follow the war day by day on Telegram. And to me, it looks like it's a bit of a grinding stalemate with you know the russians making gains small gains in some areas and the ukrainians making small gains in other areas like the ukrainians are counterattacking in Kharkiv, Kharkov, however you want to say it right now and the russians for whatever reason have only put five battalion tactical groups up there which is not enough to really stop uh, an offensive from ukraine and so they're being pushed back there but the russians have also broken through in a pretty key town, whether or not they'll continue to be able to make a breakthrough is questionable since the Ukrainians have a lot, have had a lot of time to fortify um, behind the lines and, you know, fortify the other towns. The next town after Papasnaya, or I can't remember how you say it is. um, I can't remember the name of it either. But the other thing that's interesting about um, uh, the Russian perspective is that they've had some of their top generals visiting the front lines and it was, they weren't going there to, you know, give out medals and do propaganda videos like they normally do. I think they were going there to actually see what was going on. So I don't think it's going as well as, you know, people like Scott Ritter, you know, professed that it would at the beginning. And though Scott Ritter always had the disclaimer, you know, he said, I could be wrong. But um, at the same time too, the Ukrainians have gone through three, I think, uh, mobilization waves so that's also not a great sign for them. And I think Zelensky announced today or yesterday that he's lifting kind of the restrictions on foreign visas. So basically people will have an easier time entering the country to uh, join the Ukrainian military in whatever capacity they 
choose to do so, which at this point, there's so many articles coming out where it's like, yeah, there's this, that, that Canadian sniper Wally who went there, who was super excited. Like there's an article like before and after like a meme of it where it's like, he's like, Oh, I'm going to go to Ukraine and kill Russians and, and win, win the war for the Ukrainians. And he recently left Ukraine and he was completely demoralized by his experience fighting with Ukrainians. And there's, there's videos of, I've seen of Ukrainian soldiers, you know, basically bitching out their command and saying, you guys sent us in with shitty gear and, you know, not enough um, uh, material to, to fight the Russians. So yeah, <laughs> it's very, you know, up in the air, like you're saying, even for somebody who's following it on, on, I mean, as best as I can day by day. And also, I think it's also important to remember the Russians have agency in this as well. I mean, it's important to remember, you know, China and Russia, they're, they're making moves around the world and they're not, they're not stupid. And, you know, Putin just met with the, the leader of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed, uh, or MBS. And, and, you know, it was a pretty friendly, rosy, you know, meeting compared to the one that happened recently with Blinken. So I, I don't know. I think it's important to, Think about it economically. I think this we're going to see a world where the United States, unless it somehow is able to, um, I I mean, at least it might have Europe on its side, but I see the global South kind of turning its back towards the United States. Like I think um, in Brazil, I don't remember if it was Bolsonaro or Lula or who, who said it, but one of them had the idea of creating their own. I think it was Lula actually their own, um, currency like that was separate from the united states which seems like a good way to get uh killed by the cia or overthrown but um so i think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on i'll shut yeah up and lula uh, and lula <laughs> also said this week that zelensky is equally at fault for this war <laughs> as putin yes. is which is a pretty bold thing for lula to say especially given the history of u.s involvement in his country and backing coups especially against his side of the aisle so that was that was brave of lula to say <laughs> One more thing. Uh, I saw, did you see that Bono and and some other guy are in Ukraine too playing music? And also when Justin Trudeau went to the embassy in Kiev um, and tried to raise the flag, it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a failure. He didn't, couldn't raise the Canadian flag at the embassy. So. Huh. That's funny. No, I didn't, I didn't see that, but yes, I did see there's, if anybody wants to hear Bono and the edge serenading, <laughs> the proxy war in Ukraine. There's footage of that out there now, if you can, if you can sit through it. Greg, oh, thank you for the, thanks uh, yeah. for the call. Mm-hmm. Sam, you're up. Hey, Aaron. I'll, uh, I'll keep it brief uh, today. One is just, I really have to stop saying it can't get any crazier because every time I say that, it, it seems like it just gets even crazier because yes. if you, if you told me a month ago, two months ago, that Bush would tell another world, tell somebody, tell the world that this guy is our Churchill, and the media would 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 applaud that. I would say, oh, okay, so you're reading something out of the out of the Onion. I still cannot understand how it is that the media has this like huge lapse in memory. It's like, oh, look at that George Bush praising him as a church. I'm like, is that seriously where we're at? That this war criminal could just say whatever, and it's like it's so great. It's like let's just get him. Hell, let's have Cheney also on TV and talk about what we need to do. Cause, cause historically they've been great at these things. 
I'm, I've just never been amazed. I, I can't stop being amazed at how short term our memories are of everything. But like I said, well, I don't again, want to be, again, you know, after, after year, I think, you know, I talk about Russiagate a lot, obviously, but it's, this is what is behind all this. I mean, Russiagate helped normalize the neocon worldview. And there was a time when the neocon brand is represented by Bush was, was in the dumps. And that's why, you know, as part of why, why Obama won is because he was supposed to represent a break from the neocons, but instead they actually just rebranded under the kind of democratic centrism that Obama represents. And then when they suffered a defeat to Trump, basically, um, all, their worldview was laundered via Russiagate. And so all of a sudden, to if you wanted to be a, a proper liberal, you wanted to oppose fascism and tyranny in the face of Trump, then you had to basically believe everything that the national security state said in blaming Russia for Trump and also in saying about Russia. And that means also backing up all their top policy priorities, including using Ukraine for a proxy war against Russia. And that's what that's what's happened. So it's uh, for a media that bought into that and went along with it. It's totally natural that someone like George W. Bush is a voice of reason and, uh, you know, someone who can speak with a straight face about, you know, uh, defeating aggression, you know, as if George W. Bush has, has any possible grounds to criticize anything about that, you know, but that's just how our media works. That's where we're at. Well, well, yeah, I mean, when you had the Lincoln Project emerging and people talking about how Bill Kristol and all these other people were were true Republicans, I'm like, oh, OK, we, we've we've literally sunk into, you know, Alice in Wonderland territory. I just, I'm just I'm, I'm glad it's out in the open. But no, I mean, if you have Blinken who got who got knighted and no, sorry, not Blinken, um, Tony Blair, who got a knighthood. And uh, when asked about, it, he said, "Oh, the whole Iraq thing." And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. Just brush that whole thing into one one sentence and move on. That's that's great." I just like I said, I, I have to stop saying it can't get any crazier because, hey, maybe next month we'll have Cheney giving his input to MSNBC and them saying what a what insightful view it is. But anyway, I just want to keep it short and just say, great job as always, Aaron. I look forward to tomorrow with you and Katie. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Okay, Brian. Aaron, thanks for being here. Um, you know, it seemed to me from the beginning of this that the only sane way to react to the situation is to make some sort of effort at diplomacy. Now, I understand that that there's no appetite for that really at all in D.C. or in the media, but I do still think there is value in us trying to talk about it as people who are anti-war um, and trying to at least have that thought out in the public consciousness on some level as a possibility. Um, my question is, I'm curious if you think, even if there were to be an appetite for that, if there is a still a, a door open to that, what the challenges might be, um, is it possible that Russia thinks they're doing well enough that they wouldn't even be interested in it or, or that they're already working on, you know, changing the world paradigm with China that again, they're, they're, they've totally lost interest in us, or do you still think there is that possibility of some sort of diplomatic uh, resolution, um, even if just the glimmer of it? So before the invasion, I really think that Russia was willing to accept what it proposed, which is basically Ukraine declare neutrality, that it won't join NATO, and uh, acknowledge that Russia is not giving back Crimea, and also respect the Minsk Accords. So keep the 
breakaway Donbass republics inside Ukraine, but grant them some limited autonomy. I do think that Russia would have accepted that before the war. That was essentially their position. I don't think that's the case now. I think now they've invested too much. They've gone in and invaded. Um, they've uh, lost a lot of people. And they've put themselves in a much different situation where now I don't think they'd accept that solution anymore. I think now they're going to seek actually um, control over the Donbass areas of Ukraine uh, and even beyond, or at least recognition of their independence. So that, you know, in terms of Russia accepting the terms that it would have before the war, I don't think that's happening now. Uh, certainly um, not the terms before the war, but, you know, and again, look, I understand uh, the annexation of Crimea is also considered to be obviously extremely controversial, but that that still was better than a war at that point in time. So I, I, I would still consider the possibility of a similar referendum for the Donbass to be, you know, a reasonable to resolve it. You know. Yeah, well, me too. Uh, me too. But I, um, you know, I don't know the, you know, internal di- dynamics of Russia. I do know that Putin has faced criticism from people who think he's been too accommodating to the West. And that might yeah, sound yeah. funny to a Western audience, given the, the image we're told of Putin. But there's apparently, there's apparently an even more hawkish uh, wing inside his own circle. And uh, so to the extent that they have influence, and I think they do, he has to contend with them as well. And they um, they just might favor outright annexation. And, and who am I to say that, that Russia won't do that? You know, I, I think certainly uh, it, it's just very hard to predict. And uh, But anything has to start with Ukraine being willing to accept neutrality. And I'm not even sure if they're willing to do that yet. I mean, I, I still think Zelensky, he's talking as if that they believe that they can win. And I, I don't know if you saw this report. It was in the Ukrainian media this week where they said that there was a certain point a few weeks ago where Zelensky was ready to talk to Russia and reach some kind of solution. But then Boris Johnson came with his visit and said, no, uh, we think that Russia can lose. So no negotiations. And Zelensky essentially followed that as an order. That's what was reported in the Ukrainian media. Well, he has to, and and particularly as I know it's been covered, you know, with the right threatening him, <laughs> um, you know, he's really in an impossible position. So you almost can't trust anything he says one way or the other because he doesn't have much of a choice in the matter. He's kind of, you know, against the wall. Um, yeah. I do want to – And let me say quickly, you know, on that front, there are clips that, are, that keep being unearthed of Zelensky back before he was president where he, he's talking about – he's speaking in Russian – and he's talking about just the need to recognize the the rights of Russian-speaking people in the Donbass, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, he looks sincere. And certainly he ran on something similar when he was elected, and he was elected with an overwhelming mandate to make peace. But yes, as you say, he faces the problem of a fanatic far right who threatened his life and threatened to coup him and sabotaged every step that he took in the direction of implementing the Minsk Accord. So whatever he wants to do, as you say, it's not even, it doesn't even fully matter because in the context where he's totally reliant on the U.S. and he's also boxed in by fascists in Ukraine who have a huge influence, there's really not much he can do out of his own volition. Absolutely. And I just uh, want to touch on one more thing that you mentioned because um, I also think it's important is that that section of Russia that's more extreme than Putin or at least to the right in general you know, anytime you have war, that group is going to get empowered by some shape or form. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what we're seeing there now. So, again, it just 
part of the idiocy of us being happy about this and wanting to prolong the war is it only empowers the worst parts of Russia that uh, really almost a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point uh, to, yeah. to who they are. And uh, that's Absolutely. a shame. Yeah. Absolutely. Brian, thanks for the call. Thank you. Okay, Stefan. Hey there, Aaron. Thanks for taking the call. No problem. Can you hear me? Yeah, thanks for uh, Okay, so I've got a twofold question. I've got two queries, really. The first part is regards as, as regards those coming back from the Ukraine conflict and how you see that as regards how they're going to be treated when coming back. If you if you compare that to how ISIS terrorists or fighters, when they come back, how they're how they're received, and of course, as an equally vile organization to, to, to the Azov Battalion, or, or approximately so. But uh, to, to me, it's slightly analogous to the way that, uh, for instance, in Sweden, where I live, where uh, Waffen-SS soldiers, when they came back, came back from having committed genocide during the Second World War, they were, you know, they could just go on with their lives, whereas those uh, communists and socialists who had fought against Franco during the Spanish Spanish Civil War, where they were just you know, they were interned and, and, and put in concentration camps, according to the U.N. definition. So how do you think that, firstly, how do you think that that's going to, you know, how, how do you see the response of, in regards to the Foreign Enlistment Act in the U.S. and so forth, how do you see that response to, to, to those coming back from perhaps having committed genocide or other war crimes in, in, in the Ukraine? Well, I mean, before the war, or at least before the Russian invasion, segment of the war, there were people in the U.S. who were charged with training with the Azov Battalion and people accused of plotting to commit hate crimes who have Azov ties. And I'll be curious to see if that if those kind of prosecutions and arrests are now relaxed, because it's going to become embarrassing, you know, if people with extremist ties and, uh, you know, being accused of, of plotting violence or taking part in violence and faraway violence were, you know, receiving U.S. training in Ukraine or receiving U.S. weapons in Ukraine. That's going to become embarrassing. So we'll see. Uh, I think it's a very ominous part of this war that's not being discussed, is that you have all these people coming from around the world. Not all of them, of course, are far right, but there is definitely, there's no doubt there's a far right contingent flocking to Ukraine to fight Russia in the same way that a lot of extremist jihadis flock to Syria from around the world to fight for sectarian death squads that the U.S. was supporting. And in Ukraine, they're receiving a lot of weapons. There's a lot of weapons going in there from the U.S. and other countries, and there's no way to keep track of these weapons. And so people on the receiving end of all this U.S. weaponry, US weaponry to Ukraine, that's going to go on the black market. It's not hard to get it across the border. And Europe will suffer the consequence. You know, it's mostly Europe that I think will pay the price of all this, just as it would happen in Libya where all the weapons from Libya after the regime change war there, you know, they spilled over around, uh, around that region in Mali. They were used for a number of atrocities. As we know from uh, what's known about the war in Syria, they were shipped over to Syria f- to fuel the Syria dirty war. So this will have disastrous consequences. And, and we know of cases like in Manchester, England, at that Ariana Grande concert, the bomber was someone who was taking part in the... MI6 rat line that was ferrying fighters from the UK over to Libya to fight in, in Gaddafi. And then he came back and he repaid the favor by carrying out a bombing at a concert. So uh, these are the consequences that we have to think about, but of course are not at all. Sure. No, I, I agree completely. As regards to the, 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 the second part of the question, 
Um, it, Don Pilger observed when he was in the U.S. in 2016, 2017, that, that there was a hysteria in in Washington D.C. concerning whom to fight next, and that they were going to that no, there that it was known that there was going to be a cold war, there was going to be a proxy war, uh, but it wasn't decided who was going to be the enemy at that point. Uh, now, doesn't it seem to you that the 2020 election uh, that that sort of is the watershed moment for for the uh, for the choice of enemy? Because if the Republicans were going to win, probably it was going to be China because Trump was gearing up to, to start a new Cold War with China. China was the antagonist. China was, the, was seen as what well, was portrayed, of course, in error, but portrayed propagandistically as the as the enemy and as, as the originator of uh, the COVID-19 virus. Then then Russia becomes the enemy with the ascension of Biden. And, and this is really why Biden wins, because it's more profitable to the capitalist system to have Russia, which is a much smaller economy. And which is which has a lower uh, has a, a lower GDP value than than South Korea uh, to have them as the enemy than having having China, which is so so much tied into production in the whole capitalist world. Yeah, look, I think that makes a lot of sense. My only possible disagreement there is that the Trump administration still did a lot to contribute to this current situation. It was sure. Trump. It was Trump that that started sending javelins and stingers over to Ukraine. Because he wanted to look tough on Russia because he was being accused of being a Russian agent. So, you know, mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham and John McCain were pressuring him and he wanted their support. So he sent weapons to Ukraine that Obama would not send. And uh, he also pulled out of the INF Treaty, which was a really reckless move. He also pulled out of yeah. the Open Skies Treaty. And that led yeah. to, you know, that certainly heightened Russian fears that the U.S. was trying to encircle Russia with offensive weapons uh, because it was now pulling out of arms control treaties that prevented that, especially the INF. So Trump played a huge role in the background. But, you know, I have to think, would would this war have happened if Trump were in office? Possibly not, because Trump, unlike everybody else, was at least saying publicly that he wanted to negotiate with Russia. And it's possible that if push came to shove, if he was presented with the same choice that Biden was faced with, like, do you want to have a war in Ukraine or do you want to just give Russia the symbolic victory of saying that, yes, Ukraine will not join NATO? Given how skeptical Trump was of NATO in the first place, perhaps he would have done that. And that would have that could have prevented the war. I don't think Russia would have invaded if simply the U.S. and Ukraine had said Ukraine will be neutral. So that, that's, that's quite probable. However, yeah. he would probably gone after gone after China because I, then you had all these <laughs> all of those people. You had all yeah. the, uh, well, Lindsey Graham and, and all of those, and uh, Billy, Billy Chris, Bill Crystal, yeah. um, uh, portraying the Ouija's and you know as as freedom fighters when they had in, in the early two thousand portrayed them as terrorists. So, <laughs> yes, and it was Mike Pompeo, Trump's Secretary of State, who declared one day that there was a genocide going on in Xinjiang, sure. and sure. Uh, of course, totally for propaganda purposes. But sure, and uh, and who knows who knows if Trump had a second term, what he would have done there. But, um, you know, look, I was arguing in the 2020 election that a Trump administration would be more dangerous for the world than a Biden administration. I think that was wrong. I think I was wrong on that because look what Biden's done. He, he, he hasn't even got back Hard to the to Iran. Nucle- he hasn't even got back to the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. He hasn't done anything to drop the coup in Venezuela. All he's done, his only new initiative is basically starting a new war in Ukraine. That's basically uh, what he did. And that's, True. you know. That's actually, I would argue, worse than anything Trump ever did. I hate to say that because I'm not a fan at all of Trump and, and the people he appointed. But what Biden did, I think, I is so reckless and um, and possibly Certainly globally. You know, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the famine now that's worsening because of the war in Ukraine, uh, higher energy prices for everybody. I mean, that's on top of, the, of course, the, the most immediate victims are Ukrainians and all the needless destruction and death there. But this is a global issue now. And it's there's also, as we talked about earlier, it, it raises the threat, which is not slight, of nuclear war, which is the most, you know, it's unthinkable. But Biden's done that. So... Well, it's, the guys um, in control are, n- are not going to allow a nuclear conflict. That's, that's not going to happen. I don't think so. Well, let's hope. Let's hope you're right. Okay. Um, well, thanks Steph, so much. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Thank you. No war, Chris. What's up, Baron? How you doing, brother? How's it going, Chris? I'm well. Hey, hey. I wish it was Saturday, not Sunday, but we're like, sorry. Hey. I haven't seen our buddy Kusha around in a while. I don't know what happened to him. He, like, disappeared last time I saw him. Bree was telling him that he had to, you know, ask a fucking question instead of just doing 50-minute-long monologues. And now he's gone, so... I don't, uh, yeah, yeah, Chris, look, I don't want to talk about but, someone who's who, uh, who's not here, so... so um, all right, I, well, I yeah. wanted to talk about one other person who's not here, which is Anna Katharian. Did you have any... Uh, did you see her video from last week, her meltdown? And did you have any reaction to the, the middle middle aged McCarthyites uh, uh, videos last week that were pretty hilarious? I saw her having a you know having a, like in her rant about the Democrats and having a a uh, you know getting very emotional. You know, honestly, I I truly don't. I have nothing to say about these people. You know, except when they attack me or when they you know, laughably promote like deep state scams like Russiagate or whatever else. But otherwise, I don't pay attention to them. It's just not a matter Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm blocked, so I can't even see much of it anymore. So it works out well for me, and I'm happy about it. Anyway, I ain't have much to say. I just want to say what up, Aaron, and I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday, man. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. I look forward to Monday morning tomorrow. I'll see you in the morning. Sounds good. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Okay, MJ. Okay, MJ, we can't really hear you. Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, that's better. All right. I just want to say uh, quickly, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And um, I really appreciate your reporting, especially on the OPCW. Um, I'm half Syrian, half American, and I've pretty much only got the Western perspective. So I really appreciate the reporting you've done. Um, one of the stories earlier about Bush praising Alensky as the new Churchill, that was a very interesting clown world story that we got. I thought that was pretty crazy. Um, another point, you know, the manufactured consent for this war, like the switch was turned on like nothing and everyone was in war mode. Yeah. You know, we can obviously blame Russia gate. Um, I've got to the conclusion that I think education is key. And my question is, what do you suggest, like, education-wise to kind of help our Western friends, like, kind of get up to speed with what's going on without getting called a Russian bot? <laughs> uh, so, like, a book to read or something? Or is that what you maybe, mean? Maybe. I don't even know if a book to read. Maybe, like, a certain video or maybe a certain – maybe, like, listening to a certain podcast or someone yeah. or historian. Well, you know, how can we get them on the right track? I mean, it- it's tough. I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, um, Oliver Stone made that movie Ukraine on fire, 
which I thought was great. It wasn't perfect in my opinion, but I thought it was pretty good. It has a lot of just facts that you're not allowed to get anywhere else. So I think that's a good start. And I would recommend people watch the old interviews and lectures of Stephen F. Cohen, the late Russian study scholar. And there's John Mearsheimer who, of the University of Chicago and his lectures on YouTube, which are really popular about where he basically says that the, that the crisis in Ukraine is the fault of the West. That's been viewed millions of times. So I, I'd recommend that, especially to people who are very uh, immersed in Western sources, because when, when you hear like, you know, some like when you hear like someone who's not mainstream say the same things, people have a harder time accepting it. But when you have someone like John Mearsheimer, very credentialed, comes from University of Chicago, you know, uh, he puts things in a very clear way and he's very knowledgeable and he's very establishment, you know, so people like sometimes are more receptive to that. So I would suggest that. And also Stephen F. Cohen, who's a really brilliant scholar who passed away a few years ago now, but he wrote a lot about this and had a lot of, has a lot of lectures about it too on Ukraine. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the suggestions. Thanks for the call. All right, Holden. And Holden, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Are you? Oh, I just saw that. Sorry, this is my first time using this. How you doing? Well, welcome. How you doing? Uh, great. Uh, I um, I love your work. I'm like a avid Jimmy Dore, uh, useful idiots uh, listener. So. Um, my question to you was since <clears throat> like looking at it, like the conservative and Democrat, like both of them don't really seem to be in an anti-war stance, uh, with elections coming up and 2024 coming up. What do you see as kind of like a beacon of hope to kind of correct the ship? Do you think it, you think, do you think it can be corrected? And if so, where do you think people should be looking or putting their energy into? Cause like as uh, somebody who supported Bernie in the past and he kind of got railroaded or he did get railroaded, where do you suggest people kind of in- invest their time and energy in trying to combat what's happening right now? Or do you think that it's kind of a lost cause? We just have to kind of ride it out. <laughs> Well, I do, honestly, I do think it's kind of a lost cause. <laughs> I do. If, but the thing is, it doesn't, that doesn't matter because no matter what, if you care about something, you still have to try your best to address it, you know, and make things better. So, but yes, if, if I'm giving you my objective evaluation, I think things are so bad where, you know, just, you mentioned Bernie, the fact that Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor has nothing critical to say at all about Biden yeah, and doesn't see any reasonable diplomatic solution to the crisis. I mean, that says how far to the right our political spectrum has gotten on foreign policy. So in in that situation, it's very difficult, especially when the entire media is in lockstep with the policy, except for like Tucker Carlson. You know, it just makes things very, very hard. So in terms of suggestions, I have, it's, I'm not a political organizer, you know, so I don't know what people should do. I just try to do my best to give people the facts as I understand them and um, hope that that helps. But beyond that, I I don't have, I'm not politically, uh, I'm not an organizer in that way. So I I just don't think I have any more to offer on that in terms of what you do. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) I I enjoy everything you do and always look forward to seeing you on all these shows. So I I appreciate that. Thanks. 
Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay. Deborah. And Deborah, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right, which you can hit to unmute yourself. There you go. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Okay. This is the thing. Do you not find it terrifying how everybody, the United States and a lot of others have gone along with this when it's so ridiculous on its face? And how can they not know? There's other sources out there that are saying none of this bullshit is true. And not only that, what are we going to do when Joe does go down, which George Galloway asked today, do you really think he's going to finish out his term? Then what? It's like, I'm just wondering, when the Republicans take over, can they, like, get rid of both of them? I'm just wondering what you think. Yeah, what I think is that it's a scary time. It's a very, very scary time. And the level of danger is not being appreciated and discussed in our media. And that's scary. It's scary. I don't, in terms of what will happen, I have no idea. I just know that this is the most, this is a very dangerous moment. The most dangerous moment that I can recall in my lifetime. I agree. I guess I was just wondering about the Kamala thing because George Galloway was asking today, can they take them out in one fell swoop? Can they do that? (laughs) If they, if they impeach Biden, can they go, by the way, her too? Because she goes along with all this. But, well, she doesn't have anything to say because she's a bubblehead. But- yeah, I don't, I don't think you have to worry about Kamala, honestly, because it's like she did so terribly in the primaries. She had to drop out after claiming she was a front runner pretty early on. And they all know it's, it's obvious from the leaks that like she's not very well liked inside the White House and that they know that she can't win. So I'm sure they'll find a way to get to to you know get her a job somewhere else, maybe appoint her to the Supreme Court. There's yeah. of, <laughs> I know there was talk about that. Yeah, there, no, it, there is it, so much dirt. There is so much dirt. Oh my gosh, she was horrible. She was horrible in California. Yeah, I mean, she shielded yeah. priests, priests that molested little children, and she shielded them. This is the person that we want to be our president. Okay, well, I haven't heard that one, but I've certainly heard that she you know, did a lot of terrible things. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the things. Okay. Well, um, anyway, I, I just wouldn't, I personally don't think that she has a, I, I'd be shocked if they ran her for president. And certainly I agree that I don't think Biden will run again. If I was making bets at, no, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, if they do manage to remove him, then she's still the next in command. Right. Well, Hey, that will be interesting. (laughs) <laughs> we get to that point because Deborah, everyone hates her. I'm sorry yeah. to bother you. No, it's I fine. It's fine. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much for the call. Thanks for the call. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Salim. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I'm not sure if you, you've discussed this or not, but I have a sort of a secondary view to the Ukraine conflict. I think it's kind of a a dual containment policy with the goal of not just weakening Russia, but ultimately dismantling the the European Union. Hmm. And the reason I think about that is the following. Okay, so if you're there, I lost you. Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. So I lost you. Yes, so I lost you after you said the uh, the reason I think that is the following. Oh, yeah. I, the reason I think that is because I think we've reached sort of a peak petrodollar. 
right? As the global economy or global industry is moving toward like a renewable, right? The demand for sort of this sort of petrodollar scheme is going to diminish and the sort of the biggest competitor strategically to the US dollar is, is the euro as a currency. So if you look at the global transactions of dollar versus other currency, number one is dollar almost in, in parity with the, with the euro. And in the distant third is the, the Chinese currency basically right now. And I think uh, the power of having dollar and to print dollar to actually fund our sort of military complex is so important to us. In fact, I would argue is more important to us than our nuclear arsenal, that we need to basically dismantle the European Union and the euro currency to maintain that sort of, a, sort of economical hegemony in the world. So my actually view is that we want these weapons that we ship to, to Ukraine to eventually sort of come back to EU and, and cause a lot of havoc. And the, sort of the first casualty of it would be the no border policy. Along with it, I think we're going to have a lot of fragmentation in different countries, want to have different kind of approach to the EU, sort of Russian sanctions. And I think it will, I think what it's going to do in the next few years is going to force the European Union to basically break apart. And, um, which is, I think, what actually the, 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 Brit, the Brits want that. When, when the Brits left the European Union, they're in a very good position to be the leading power of, of the Europe, right? But as, as long as the European Union is intact, it's very difficult to do that. So the Brits are incented for the European Union to, to get fragmented. We are definitely very incented. And I think, you know, Ukrainians are going to pay the price for this thing, which is kind of unfortunate. But I think the ultimate goal is not just weakening Russia, but to actually dismantle the European Union. Okay. Well, look, thanks for sharing that. I certainly agree that it's the Ukrainians that will pay the price. I mean, that's, they're being sacrificed for whatever whatever the agenda is, whether it's just to weaken Russia or it's, as you say, that's even it's even beyond that too. It has to do with uh, undermining the European Union. It's Ukrainians who are sacrificing, and that's that to me is just criminal. So thank you, Salim, for the call. Sure. Okay, and and this will be... This could be the last caller because I have to wrap it up soon. Okay, Anne, go ahead. Hi, Aaron. I was just calling to ask if um, you and your dad have discussed the European Union and, and basically, in a sense, like Hungary versus, um, you know, Germany. You know, Hungary's holding strong against, you know, Orban is holding strong against uh, wanting to sanction Russia, and he's resisting all that to, like, hold his country together. And I was wondering what you thought about that because of your family heritage. And then versus Germany that just seems to be just wanting to rapidly deindustrialize itself. Is the, that's the way I understand it. They're refusing. They're basically the, – many countries don't mind destroying themselves for this. Uh, and I, I really – I found that shocking because I always – I didn't realize they would follow the United States down the rabbit hole like that. Well, I totally agree with that too. I find that so confusing. Previous chancellors, Angela Merkel, and the other chancellor, I forgot his name, but the guy who now works for Rosneft, he basically is, you know, he, he's the cha- or he's a, a chair or something of the Russian oil company or, or has a high position. His name escapes me right now. They, they always, I think, skillfully uh, navigated the difficulty of like, you know, being on Russia's border, but also being a part of a European order that is totally subordinate to the U.S., and I think they always manage to walk that very fine line pretty skillfully. 
But Schultz, the chancellor right now, has totally abandoned that. He's just, you know, initially he resisted the calls to abandon Nord Stream 2. But since then, yeah, as you say, he's helped destroy or sabotage his own economy. And why he does that, I have no idea. And why the Greens in Germany are so determined to, like, serve the U.S. agenda at the expense of their own country, I, it doesn't make sense to me at all. But that's just one of those things that maybe we'll find out later what, like what was going on. But in terms of Hungary, I don't have too many thoughts on that because I haven't followed it closely. Although, as you point out, half my family is from there, and I should follow it because it's interesting. And it's interesting how Orban has been attacked for not going along with everyone else and, and supporting the proxy war in Ukraine. It's, it's interesting. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know much about it to be able to comment. Yeah, he's going to go forward with the gas for rubles. He's, he's mm-hmm. just going to do it. He doesn't. He's so I, I'm hoping he holds out, and I hope other countries follow him. But I think the Greens in Germany, uh, maybe they have great ideas and stuff like that about transitioning out of um, fossil fuels. But the rapid, the rapidness of this, it, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't believe they'll ever recover. You know the products and industry that they have. You know. It'll just take too long. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't make sense. And that's from the Germans I know. They talk about even right now, you know, uh, some shelves and grocery stores not having what they need. And so they're already really feeling the pinch. And why the government doesn't seem to care or at least hasn't done enough to address it, 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 it's beyond me. It doesn't make sense. Well, thanks very much, Aaron. Thank you, Ann. And thanks, everybody, who tuned in today. I really appreciate you spending the time. I'll be back on here tomorrow morning after we do the Useful Idiots Monday morning recap show on YouTube. That'll, that will be on here at 11 o'clock Eastern Time AM with Katie Helper. And otherwise, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining me. Bye, everybody.